edition of With All Due Respect. Strong opinions on politics, life, and entertainment. Welcome to another episode of With All Due Respect. I am your host, Andrew Halcrow. With me, as always, is my main man, Mr. Van Sanders. Mr. Sanders, how are you today? I am doing quite well. Really looking forward to this uh, chill weekend coming up. Always good to hear. As always, we'd like to thank the Anchorage Daily News for hosting our podcast on their website and remind listeners that the very strong opinions you hear on this podcast are mine and mine alone and in no way, shape, or form represent the opinions of the Anchorage Daily News or their employees. On this episode, with all due respect to Sergio Leone, we're calling this the bad, the ugly, and the good. In local politics, the bad. The Anchorage Assembly votes down the mayor's homeless shelter proposal after he spends millions of taxpayer money illegally, all without any development plans, business plans, or even project cost estimates. In state politics, the ugly. A Kenai woman has filed a lawsuit against former Kenai Peninsula Borough Mayor and gubernatorial candidate Charlie Pierce, accusing Pierce of constant unwanted physical touching, sexual remarks, and sexual advances. Okay, aside from the fact that Charlie Pierce appears to be a very disturbed misogynist, it also appears that very disturbed misogynists stick together in conservative circles. In our political interview this week, there are 29 judges on the ballot this fall, and with Alaska's independent judiciary under constant political attack, Ethan and I will talk to a retired judge, Elaine Andrews, and the executive director of the Alaska Judicial Council, Suzanne DiPietro, about the process that keeps the judicial appointments free from politics. In entertainment, last week we lost Leslie Jordan, one of the sweetest souls in entertainment, and today a timely book on his life. And finally, in closing comments, the good, and I mean the really good, the Rasmussen Foundation. While Mayor Dave Bronson's string of failures and illegal actions have received most of the public attention, we cannot forget to talk about the amazing work the Rasmussen Foundation is doing to help address Anchorage's homelessness problem. I mean, what they're doing is very impressive. All right, let's talk some politics. politics. And now for some politics. politics. In local politics, Last Tuesday, the Anchorage Assembly on a 9-3 vote killed Mayor Dave Bronson's homeless shelter after his administration illegally spent $4.9 million on the project. Now, we covered this fiasco on the last episode, so for those of you not keeping score at home, a very quick recap. May of 2021, Bronson was elected promising to solve homelessness. In July of 2021, Bronson, through his homeless coordinator, John Morris, proposed a new shelter that grew in cost from $7 million to over $30 million with no end in sight. Also beginning in July of 2021, the Anchorage Assembly begins asking the Bronson administration for project plans with estimates for construction, along with operating and maintenance plans for the shelter. Two months later, Bronson's homeless coordinator, John Morris, resigns and is replaced by Joe Gerace. So between October of 2021 and this past August, Joe Gerace was the Bronson administration's point guy on the construction of the shelter. Gerace was the guy calling the shots, 
making the decisions. He was responsible for planning of the shelter. Then in early August, a bombshell. Gerais was forced to resign after it was discovered almost his entire resume was fabricated. and He was not even qualified to do the job he had been doing. Joe Gerais had no qualifications, no experience, and no legitimate reason why he should have been managing this million-dollar project on behalf of taxpayers. Then, a month after Gerais' resignation, the Assembly is informed that Bronson's management team, including Gerais, had greenlighted $4.9 million in unauthorized work on the project. Now, during this entire 14 months of Bronson's Benny Hill episode— The Anchorage Assembly has been pleading with the Bronson administration for basic financial information. Let me remind you, ladies and gentlemen, that is the Assembly's responsibility to be the the, the due diligence portion for taxpayers. They're the ones that are supposed to vet and appropriate the cash that the city spends. So for the last 14 months, the Anchorage Assembly has been pleading for a project plan, construction cost estimates, a detailed construction budget, updates on permitting status, what is their 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 public outreach plan, and most importantly, they've been asking for an operating plan detailing how much is this shelter going to cost taxpayers on a yearly basis. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, wouldn't you want to know that? You're 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 spending what, 12 to 15 million dollars, shouldn't you know what you're on the hook for for, for operations and maintenance every year? Even as late as last night, the Bronson administration still didn't have basic answers to questions that have been posed for the last 14 months. Look, this project failed because Mayor Dave Bronson is the most unqualified mayor in Anchorage history, and he surrounded himself by a staff who are really bad at their jobs. I mean, it is hard to look back over the years and point to another Anchorage mayor who has failed so miserably at taxpayer expense. In fact, during this entire Bronson Clown Show, the only people who have benefited from this fiasco, from this armed robbery of taxpayer money, was the mayor's political donors. Between Bronson's campaign supporters like Roger Hickel Contracting and McKenna Trucking, those firms have scored millions in taxpayer money for a dirt lot. I mean, what the hell? This sounds like an episode of The Sopranos. I mean, you know, who's running this scam? Polly Walnuts? I mean, can you imagine having that conversation? Hey, that'll be $4.9 million. Uh, Yeah, but it's just a dirt lot and it wasn't even approved. Hey, come closer. Obviously, you don't understand that sometimes rules are made to be broken. Now. Davy Bronson said my crew was going to get paid, and so my crew is going to get paid. But hey, look on the bright side. The price includes a big tent. A big tent? What the hell are taxpayers going to do with a big tent in a dirt lot? Hey, I'm an ideas man. Look, you've already got a clown show with the Bronson administration, right? Well, you just put up the tent and you could have a really nice circus. Forget about it.
In state politics, I am forced to imagine there is a playbook for conservative politicians who illegally force themselves on their employees. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the patterns are just too similar to dismiss as a coincidence. Last week, a Kenai woman filed a sexual harassment suit against former mayor, former Kenai borough mayor, Charlie Pierce. Now, this was not the first time Pierce had found himself in trouble and his local taxpayers having found themselves on the hook for his irrational and illegal behavior. The victim accuses Pierce of touching her breasts, making sexual remarks, false imprisonment in his private office, unwanted and unsolicited embraces and massages, kissing her neck and face, asking the victim questions about the details of her sex life, and telling the victim that only he could fire her and that she wasn't wise to say no to him. I mean, sweet Jesus on a Vespa. Charlie Pierce sounds like a lot like Harvey Weinstein. Now, the response to this news was swift. Both independent candidate for governor Bill Walker and Democratic candidate Les Guerra blasted Pierce for his illegal behavior towards women. And even Pierce's own running mate, Edie Grunwald, resigned from the ticket just two weeks before the election, stating she could no longer run alongside Pierce, saying she had to stand up for Alaska women. In fact, the only candidate to look the other way was incumbent Governor Mike Dunleavy. When asked about his support for his fellow Republican, Dunleavy said the allegations are serious, but nothing has been proven in court, so no harm, no foul. Ladies and gentlemen, the governor of a state with some of the highest rates of violence against women in the country, the governor of a state where only one third of the victims of sexual harassment actually come forward to report the crime is siding with a political ally instead of the women of Alaska. I mean, for God's sake, Pierce's own running mate dropped him like a bad habit, but not Governor Dunleavy, who never misses the opportunity to say he stands up for Alaska's women. But this shouldn't surprise anyone, as Pierce and Dunleavy are two peas from a very similar pod. Remember, it was just two years ago that Governor Mike Dunleavy covered up one of the most extreme cases of sexual harassment in recent history. Dunleavy's Attorney General Kevin Clarkson was the state's top law enforcement officer who sexually harassed a female employee who worked just steps from Governor Dunleavy's desk. In fact, it is an off-the-ironic meter that Dunleavy would mention the need for definitive proof after Clarkson lied to God and country about having over 500 incriminating text messages on his government-issued phone. The governor's attorney general was an absolute proven liar, but yet that's where Dunleavy has set the bar. Now, let's compare the allegations against Pierce with the actual text that Clarkson sent to his victim. Pierce is accused of unwanted and unsolicited embraces. Clarkson texted his victim demanding unsolicited hugs from her. Pierce is accused of making sexual remarks. Clarkson texted his victim calling her a pretty lady while inviting her over to his house for a glass of wine. Pierce is accused of kissing his victim's neck and face. Clarkson sent dozens of kissing emojis to his victim's phone. But that's not where the similarities end. 
Charlie Pierce is married, a Republican, calls himself a conservative Christian, and believes women should have limited rights. Kevin Clarkson is also married, also a Republican, and also calls himself a conservative Christian, and he too believes women should have limited rights. So the fact that Governor Mike Dunleavy is essentially covering up for both of them makes complete and total sense. Because even in Alaska, with some of the highest rates of violence against women in the country, at the end of the day, for Governor Mike Dunleavy, it's about protecting his political allies rather than protecting the women of Alaska. Now, during a recent state debate, during a discussion on women's rights, Dunleavy brought up his daughters in an attempt to humanize himself as a father. Well, as a father myself, I have to wonder if his response would have been any different if it was his daughter who was sexually harassed by Kevin Clarkson, or if it was his daughter who worked for Charlie Pierce and went public with the allegations, which, to be honest, read a lot more like sexual assault by Pierce than sexual harassment. Well, we can only use history as our guide, and history tells us that no matter whose daughter, no matter whose mother, or no matter whose wife, Governor Mike Dunleavy is going to look the other way when it comes to members of his own political party committing sexual offenses. In our politics segment interview, Alaska's judiciary considered the finest in the country. Alaska's judicial branch has been under constant attack from Governor Mike Dunleavy over the last four years, from his failed attempts to influence the way justices are selected to his unconstitutional vetoes of court funding, to his appointment of Christy Babcock to the Alaska Judicial Council. Now, because he's been unable to exercise control over the third but equal branch of state government, Governor Dunleavy and his allies are telling Alaskans that what we need is a constitutional convention in order to fix the judicial branch. But what Dunleavy and his ilk want isn't to fix the judicial branch because it's broken. They want to fix it because it's not broken. From privacy rights to equal access, for years, conservatives have complained about Alaska's courts because justices actually hold up the Constitution and protect Alaskans. Dunleavy wants to change the appointment process of judges so they can politicize them. But again, the reality is Alaska has arguably one of the best judicial appointment and retention systems in the country. In fact, there has been articles written about how Alaska's judicial process successfully insulates justices from politics during the appointment process. Our system is considered one of the best in the country, if not the world. And ladies and gentlemen, it's safe to say over the last four years, with failed special sessions, stalemates over policy disputes, and multiple threats of state government shutdowns, the judicial branch has been at times, actually at many times, the only working, functioning branch of state government. Today on this episode, we'll be talking about the history of Alaska's judicial system, the 29 justices that are up for retention next month on the ballot, and what the process of retention means for judges. Joining me today are Judge Elaine Andrews, who is a retired trial judge of over 20 years in Anchorage. She's a member of the Committee for Fair and Impartial Courts for the Alaska Bar Association and co-chair of Alaskans for Fair Courts. Also joining us today is Suzanne DiPietro, the executive director of the Alaska Judicial Council. And before being hired by the Judicial Council in 2014, Suzanne worked for the Alaska court system. 
All right, and now it's time to bring in Suzanne DiPietro, the executive director of the Alaska Judicial Council, retired Judge Elaine Andrews, and of course, my friend and colleague, Ethan Berkowitz. Suzanne, welcome to the program. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. I'm wondering if we could start with just a little history lesson of Alaska's judicial branch and how it all came to be. Well, thanks, Andrew. It's great to be here. So um, I have uh, read the minutes to the Constitutional Convention, and it's quite interesting. Um, I really actually recommend them to your listeners. Um, The thing that, that really strikes a person when they read those minutes is how carefully the delegates studied and debated the decisions that were made about our Article Four, the judicial branch, and there was really there were really kind of a couple of themes. The first main theme was that they didn't want to do anything new; that they wanted to do something that had been proven in other states, and uh, and so they they you know Alaska had the benefit of coming to the union later and and being able to look and see what worked in other places and didn't, and the delegates did that, and the Judiciary Committee did that, and came up with the merit selection plan, the so-called Missouri plan for the selection of judges. And the other real uh, intense theme from the discussions was that that everyone there wanted as much as possible for politics to not be involved in the judicial selection and retention process in Alaska. And the reason for that was that a lot of the delegates had practiced in other states or had experience with other uh, types of appointment systems, either elected or appointed by by the governor or the president, and and they found those systems wanting in various ways. Uh, they acknowledged that all systems have their pros, but they really had a very extensive debate about the pros and the cons of all the different ways of doing it. And they found that the elected and the appointed systems used in a few other states were not good and did not result in the highest quality judiciary, put too much politics into it, and that this merit selection system that they chose was really absolutely the best balance uh, between uh, the, the mer- getting the people in on the merit and then having the voters vote uh, for the judges to continue in office. Okay. And I, and I want to touch on that because I think, you know, one of the things you said about trying to insulate you know, the judicial brains from politics, we see how in other states that there is no line. Right. I mean, we've all traveled and seen those you know, signs in people's yard, you know, vote for you know, Joe Johnson, circuit county judge or whatever. And the politics of, of judges is no different than the politi- politics of candidates. I mean, it's all, you know, it's all rancor. And, and I can clearly see why you had the, the, the founders looking at the judicial branch saying, we want to be insulated from this. And I guess, you know, my question for Elaine is, you know, in your year, Years or twenty years on the bench. I mean, you had to have you know come across situations like these in your field in other states where there were issues with this whole political being judges running for office. I, I, I did, and actually, one of the uh, the stories that that I every new judge who's appointed in Alaska uh, shortly after their appointment goes goes to judge school. It's the National College of the State Judiciary, and uh, you go there for sort of a, a I would call it a basic training uh, on how to run a courtroom and, and other substantive kinds of things. But you're trained there along with judges from all over the country. And for Alaska judges, it is a shocking experience for a couple of reasons. One, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a heavy duty, uh, you know, academic exercise, but during the breaks and during lunch, uh, all you hear is, uh, 
talk about campaign finances and what are you giving away for little campaign tchotchkes and how much have you raised and um you know uh it's it's all about money raising and campaigning and 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 you know discussion about oh i've got you know i I raised a million dollars and then you ask them well what is your (laughs) what is your position pay and it pays eighty two thousand dollars a year and you're saying how 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 can this be It, it there's it's it's highly political. And, and if I can be just a, a little bit snarky and say um, some of the performance of my classmates at the Judicial College um, were a little shocking to me in terms of their um, capabilities, because these are people who are elected. They're not merit selected. They just have money or are able to acquire money. And um, it, you know, a very uh, quick glance suggests that they're uh, academic capabilities are wanting. So, so, so I've been exposed, and I can tell you, I'm thrilled to get back to Alaska every time I had gone to judicial college. Excellent. Um, so, Suzanne, you know, circling back around, so, so we we have had this system, and we've we've had this system that's maintained its independence. Uh, I said in my opening comments that over the last two or three years, there have been many times that the judicial branch was the only functioning, working branch of government in the state, with the legislature and the executive branch threatening shutdowns and you know budget debates and all those kinds of things. I mean, and that's the key role of the judicial branch is to keep working and to keep providing, obviously, the opportunities for justice for Alaskans. But, you know, my question to you is, over the last 20 years, I've seen a, a higher and higher level of, of, of anger and discourse towards those that would want to change this system, right? Um, and I'm wondering, and, and I know as the executive director, is there any when you look at the system, is there any visible shortcomings of, 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 of our system? Because when you hear critics talk about, you know, the, the you know, judges and, you know, they're, they're appointed by, you know, a group of, of lawyers, it seems to me, as Elaine just said, that's the way you have a merit-based system, right? So can you speak at all about Well, sure. So the Judicial Council, you know, in the Constitution, it says that the members of the council shall be appointed without regard to political affiliation. So it is it was it was built to be nonpartisan. And that is the ethic that the council has embraced. And so the three members are appointed by the governor. They serve staggered six year terms. So not every member is appointed by the same governor, but the governor has three. uh, Whoever is the governor, there are three seats on there. And then uh, they cut, and those uh, seats are supposed to also be um, with re- with respect to geographical diversity. So they're supposed to be from different parts of the state. And then the lawyers are elected by their peers at the Alaska Bar Association and appoint. And again, uh, that's that's lawyers from uh, three of the different judicial districts in the state. So we've got good geographic diversity. And and more importantly, uh, well, not as importantly, the the bylaws and procedures of the Judicial Council are right out there. They're public. We publish them on the website. We publish them in our biennial report. And anyone can go and look and see what are the criteria that the council is using to evaluate people who want to be judges. And those criteria are legal, you know, legal ability, integrity, temperament, fairness, 
all the things that you would want your judge to be. And then what are the procedures that are being used? Well, we have very uh, thorough and transparent procedures that are designed to make a level playing field for all the applicants so that they can be judged on their merits. So uh, from from my perspective, uh, you know, the, the council is, is, is functioning in a nonpartisan, transparent, and uh, very diligent and conscientious manner. Um, Ethan, I'm going to bring you in here because um, I'm going to I'm going to insulate Suzanne and Elaine from politics because you and I have talked on this podcast for months about you know kind of the political attempts and the political attacks on the judiciary the last four years. I mean, you know, Dunleavy has made it no no secret that he thinks he should have the ability to appoint. You know, justices. Now, this dates back to when we were in the legislature, right? I mean, I first remember this when Frank Murkowski started criticizing how you know the the Judicial Council worked and the appointment process. Um, you know, we served together. What's the, what's behind this? What's behind these attacks on clearly a judicial branch that is one of the best in the there, world? There's an effort to get the, the the decisions that are most supportive of special interests. And people are trying to politicize the judiciary, which compromises judicial independence. It also leads us away from the rule of law, and it leads us into a sort of a mob rule situation. And there's two really critical components that that require protection here. First of all, is the independence of the judiciary is really critical. And when judges and judges supporters are forced to raise money in order to – campaign in one form or another, there's there's an implicit quid pro quo in fundraising. You, you, you raise money from supporters. You don't raise money from opponents. You don't raise money from neutral parties. And so that compromises judicial independence. But I also listen very carefully when people attack judges for specific rulings. They're not attacking the merits of the ruling there and the substance of the process that led a judge to make that decision they're attacking the verdict or the decision and that to me undercuts judicial independence and and it's anti-democratic Okay, so this November, we have 29 judges on the ballot for retention. Um, Elaine, would you speak to us a little bit about those 29 and the process for you know their, their terms and how this process works? Uh, sure. So Suzanne explained a little bit about how uh, the judges are selected on a, a merit-based system. And that, that evaluation process pretty much repeats itself when it comes to retention. So, so once you are appointed by the governor, you sit... Uh, judges are do not have life terms in Alaska. We're state court judges. We're not federal judges. And depending on the level of court you sit on, your uh, term could be anywhere from four to 10 years. And when your term is up um, or near to being up, the Judicial Council does a huge evaluation of your time on the bench. They survey all the lawyers in the state. They survey all law enforcement. They survey social workers. They survey um, the, um, the uh, members of the, of the courthouse so that, you know, the people you work with, they survey the attorneys that have been in front of you. They survey jurors. They survey basically everyone who's had any contact of any kind with you as a sitting judge. And they ask those people to rate you. And of course, keep in mind that, that, you know, a, a judge is given disputes to solve 
Um, and, you know, I, I always say a judge can't have higher than a 50% rating because someone wins and someone loses. So anything above 50% is a win. Um, but when these uh, surveys come back, then the judicial council goes over everything. They hold public hearings where people in the public can come and testify about a judge. They accept letters. Um, they gather as much information as is humanly possible. And then the members of the Judicial Council look at all of that, and they make the decision as to whether or not you should be recommended to uh, renew your term. And they put their recommendation um, out into the public, and the public gets the chance to say yes or no. So, so when voters get the voter pamphlet, they'll see in, in South Central Alaska, they're going to have 20 judges to vote on. Um, and I think that this... Un, you know, kind of defies the notion that this is some kind of, you know, attorney cabal that are propping up judges. The Judicial Council has unanimously recommended all of the judges up for retention this year. Every single member of the council said, yes, this judge is performing at or above um, standards that we consider to be acceptable. So, so the governor's appointees, the lawyers, there's completely unanimous agreement. All the judges on the ballot have been recommended for retention. And, you know, the obligation of the, of the citizenry is um, to basically finish the ballot. I mean, obviously you can say, no, I don't want that judge. But you really, it should be a meaningful vote. And if you don't know the judge and you won't know the judge, because, for example, people on Anchorage are voting on judges in Kenai and Palmer and Kodiak. Um, the Judicial Council has done the work. They've they've done the kind of research you could never do, and they, on a bipartisan basis, have recommended retention for the judges on the ballot. Judge, let me ask you a quick question here. Uh, some people might perceive the Judicial Council as a rubber stamp, always backing judges. Have there been instances where the council has recommended against um, uh, against somebody? They have. Uh, Suzanne would know the exact numbers, but they have recommended against retention. And interestingly enough, um, sometimes those ju judges have lost their jobs as a result of that recommendation. And occasionally the council has recommended against retention and the voters have said, no, we want to keep this judge. So so the voters ha have a say. I mean, it is not it is it's um, they, they can go either way. Um, but, but what happens oftentimes is the voters get to the end of the ballot, um, you know, especially with the ranked choice voting, <laughs> they may be tired by the time they reach the end of the ballot and the judges are always at the end of the ballot. Um, sometimes people, they just leave it blank because they, because they don't know, or and this is the thing that <laughs> always makes me want to just put my head in the sand. Um, they vote no because they don't know the judges. So instead of you know, they just say, well, I don't know this judge. I'm going to vote no, um, which basically says to the judge, no, you're not qualified to sit again. So, um, you know, finish the ballot and, 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 you know, make a meaningful decision. And no means I specifically don't want the judge. It doesn't register as a, I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's that, there's that technicality. Okay, so, so let me wrap up with uh, with kind of a final question. Now, you've mentioned that there's 29 judges on, on the ballot this year. They have all uh, been uh, recommended for retention. 
In the past, certainly over the last several election cycles, there has been 11th hour attacks on on judges that are on the ballot from special interest groups who, as Ethan mentioned, may be upset about a, a specific verdict, right, that they that they rendered. So, uh, Elaine, maybe you could talk to me about what happens in this case. You're a judge. You're on the ballot for retention. Somebody comes out of the woodwork at the 11th hour and attacks you, right? Now, you are not a regular politician because judges aren't allowed to campaign. So if, if it was a regular politician, you'd just go back and attack them. So what do I do as somebody on the ballot who at the 11th hour is suddenly attacked by a special interest? Well, this, this actually ha- has happened, and it is a very difficult situation because, um, you know, judges by definition are not involved in the political process. And let me just say, I am a fully retired judge. So I was active for 20 years. I was available to work for the court for the next 20 years. Even then, I was unable to do anything political. This has become such an important thing for me, for people to understand that I have completely retired. So I am free to speak, unlike the judges. So, So the judges who find themselves in that situation, it's kind of a fire drill. Uh, you know, friends and lawyers who see this gather and they, um, you know, they have to kind of scramble to figure out where is the attack coming from, try and respond to it. And it's, um, it, it's, it's a crisis situation. And, um, you know, and the judges have, have not had high money campaigns. They just hope that there's enough community support. So, so uh, last year after doing this, for a while, I we decided that we were going to put together a, a group called Alaskans for Fair Courts, and and we've established an, an organization that is set up to kind of deal with this um, because it, it you cannot, especially in these high money special interest things, there's there's no way not to um, you just can't ignore it. And they wait, interest groups wait until the last couple of weeks because they know a judge cannot respond unless they have active opposition. So they basically gather their ammunition and then start shooting their information, you know, two weeks before the election, um, because the judge cannot do anything prior to active opposition. They know the rules. They know the rules the judges are bound by, and they use that to their advantage and to the disadvantage of the sitting judge. They're they're picking on somebody who can't fight back. Yes, the judges are fundamentally unfair. (laughs) As, as a as a playground referee, I would I would agree with you. Yeah. Well. All right. So, uh, Suzanne, any closing comments? There's there the 29 judges are on the ballot this November. Where can people go to research records, or where do we go to so do research? So, there's a couple of different things. Uh, there's a p- couple of different places to get information. First of all, if you want kind of a summary of information. You can look for that voter information pamphlet that the Division of Elections will be sending out. I think they usually do it about 20, 22 days before the election. And, and um, you can flip to the back because the judges are in the back and you can find out all the judges on your ballot. You'll see some summary information from the Judicial Council's evaluation. And also on the other page, uh, you will see a, a little bit of information put put in there by the judge, him or herself, although since the judges are not really political people, they, the, the information they provide doesn't look like the information you would see from an actual political candidate. And then, and, and for a lot of people, that's enough and that's all they need to know. But if you're, if for people who are more curious or want to spend a little more time, have a little more energy, please go to the Judicial Council website, 
www.state.ak.us. And uh, there uh, we have just really all the information that the council has collected. So you can go as deep or as shallow as you want. You can get a list of all the judges who are going to be on your ballot, and then you can click on any of those judges and get some summary performance information. And then you can go even deeper by clicking on the hyperlinks down in there. And you can actually view the survey results and the documents and the judge's statement and just all kinds of stuff. So, you know, choose your own adventure on that. Um, uh, you can go as, as you can do the 10,000 foot view or you can go detailed. The, the, the council's job is to provide the information to the voters. That's the the legislature has told the council to do that. And so we take that very seriously and put it all out there. All right. Uh, Suzanne DiPietro, Elaine Andrews, my friend Ethan, this has been fabulous. And everybody get out and vote. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks today. so much. And now, entertainment. entertainment. In our entertainment segment this week, Last week, the world lost a good one. Actor Leslie Jordan, a familiar face for years on Will and & Grace and who rose to new levels of stardom on Instagram during the pandemic, died tragically last week at age 67. What made his sudden death so surreal for me is I had just finished reading his autobiography only two months ago. Look, if you're a fan of Leslie Jordan, you will be a fan of this book. This is a wonderful story of someone who always kept a spring in his step and a smile on his face, even during some of the most difficult times of his life. The book is entitled, How Y'all Doing? Misadventures and Mischief from a Life Well Lived. It's written by Leslie Jordan, checks in at 195 pages. I can tell you, this is a really a heartwarming read. In closing comments, is there any good news out there? Why, yes. Yes, there is. In August, just as the Bronson administration was preparing to illegally spend millions of taxpayer dollars on his ill-fated homeless shelter, the Anchorage Assembly granted $12 million to the Rasmussen Foundation to purchase hotels for extremely low-income workers and workforce housing. A few days later, Bronson vetoed the grant, saying he had no faith in the organization to manage the taxpayers' money. Okay, here is a good place to stop. Now, think about this. As Mayor Bronson was vetoing the grant to the Rasmussen Foundation because he believed they would not be good stewards of public money, he was, at that very moment, spending millions in public money illegally. Thankfully, the Assembly overrode Bronson's veto and awarded the grant. First, the Rasmussen Foundation took that money and established an Anchorage Affordable Housing and Land Trust. In addition to setting up a land trust, they're leveraging those millions to acquire hotels that should be done in January. Meanwhile, back at City Hall, after vetoing the Rasmussen grant, Mayor Bronson's personal efforts have delivered us little more than a $5 million dirt lot. Seriously, the work that the Rasmussen Foundation is doing is adding critical pieces that will help address Anchorage's homelessness problem. And these pieces are being put in place by Alaska's philanthropic backbone. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe, as many Alaskans believe, I'm just going to say it. If not for the hard work, the commitment, and the investments of the Rasmussen Foundation over the last few decades throughout Alaska... I'm not sure what our state would look like. 
And there is the music, ladies and gentlemen. And you know what that means. Our time is up. Please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. Vanth, throw us your contact info. Yes, sir. Um, you guys can visit me at abodabobrand.com. That's A-B-O-D-A-B-O-B-R-A-N-D.com. Or on Instagram at abodabobrand. And there is our time, ladies and gentlemen, and we thank you for yours.